Welcome back to a new edition of the Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football coverage of the American Sun Belt and Conference USA. Things are going to sound a little bit different around here today. Eric Henry here, FIU beat writer for UDD. Uh, normally, you'd be hearing Joe Lonergan's voice to open the show. However, he is missing an action. Uh, don't fret. He'll be back for the next episode. He's a little bit under the weather, so Joe will be back. I know those of you who have listened to us for the past two and a half years have gotten used to our typical banter and rigmarole and all that good stuff. But uh, before I introduce our guest for today's podcast, uh, last episode, you heard Middle Tennessee State quarterback Asher O'Hara. You heard our interview with him. I want to thank Asher and the fine folks at MTSU for making that happen. A little later on in the offseason, we'll have Blue Raiders beat writer from the Murfreesboro Daily News Journal, Joe Spears, on to preview the team in depth. But on that note, we are actually continuing our beat writer series. I believe the last beat writer you heard from was Elliot Pratt. Um, of a Western Kentucky. Of course, I'm forgetting the publication off the top of my head when I need to. But uh, joining us today is the man for all things martial sports, all things Thundering Herd. Uh, beat writer for the Herald Dispatch in Huntington, West Virginia, Mr. Grant Trailer joins the show. Grant, first and foremost, I uh, hope you and your family have been safe with kind of this uh, unique and tumultuous oh, yeah. time. And outside of that, how's it going? Oh, it's going going well. And uh, thank you. You know, my family has been doing great. And Definitely uh, different times, you know, it, it, we never thought we'd be talking about all this stuff, but uh, we're happy we're healthy. And, and best of all, Eric, you and I are talking sports again, which means a little bit of normalcy coming back. <laughs> Absolutely. Tell me about it. You know, it, it seemed like, you know, it got things got a little hairy there for a second, you know, kind of, and I, we're not out of the woods yet, but it definitely seemed like, you know, uh, kind of that doomsday scenario that we could go an entire year without at least talking a little football and that, uh, that seemed a little scary there. So kind of definitely. Just I mean, I, I was I was worried about it. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Uh, first one here, uh, uh, Grant. You know, just a uh, kind of start off, kind of broad question here. Uh, Marshall finished last year with an eight and five record. And they they lost a tough one to Boise State early on. Performed well in Conference USA. Played before losing to UCF in the Gasparilla Bowl. And I I actually covered that game for UDD. And I'm Grant. I'm sure you can attest to this. It was one of the longest third quarters maybe in the history of football. <laughs> 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 But, the only uh, thing that's been longer than that has been this uh, this COVID pandemic. I mean, that, that third <laughs> quarter did seem like it took two years. I'm, I'm not lying. If I booked a flight trying to get out of there quickly after that game, they missed the flight. <laughs> Absolutely, most definitely. Um, but uh, but as a whole, um, what was the feeling around the program last year? Or excuse me, what was the feeling around the program and the fan base regarding last season? Well, I know that uh, you know Marshall finished eight and five, and and you know had what on paper seemed like like a pretty good year not a great year by any stretch but i think if you ask anybody around the marshall circles they weren't happy with how things you know went especially you go on the road and and you beat a, an fau team that was very very good and, and you get uh, the overtime win over fiu which which you definitely needed as well but you know, then you look at some of the losses going to middle tennessee and, and losing in the fashion they did i mean they got shut out in the second half and had over 350 yards of offense in that second half alone and 600 for the game. It's just things like that, uh, the, the inexplicable losses, Middle Tennessee, Charlotte, uh, when those are your two conference losses and, and talent-wise you are superior to both teams in, your, in Marshall's opinion they were, and statistically in those games they were too. Uh, Charlotte is a great team, but, but losing that game when you're in control of your own East division uh, – Faith, then it's it's kind of inexcusable and and I know that uh, disappointment was was really the the framework of the conversation about 2019. 
Well, if my memory serves me correct, you kind of led into it talking about the Charlotte Middle Tennessee State game. My memory serves me correct. One of the things that cost them, I believe it was the Charlotte game, memory serves me correct, uh, was quarterback Isaiah Green. He had, I think he went six for 17, no touchdowns, two interceptions. Mm -hmm. So that kind of leads me into my next question, that one of the most scrutinized players really in the entire conference has been Isaiah Green. Two-part question. First off, do we know who or what he is as a player yet? And, you know, as cliche as this is, I hate to phrase it to you this way. Is this a make or break year for him? I mean, I would think so. Uh, if you look at, um, you know, his freshman year, obviously very solid. Last year, he was good, but in in key times, he struggled. Uh, you look at the interceptions, it's not that they came, it's when they came, the situations. and. It seemed like for two or for the last two years, when his interceptions have come, they've been at critical times and they've gone for big swings. And so, uh, ball security is something that he's going to have to work on. Um, it's amazing whenever he keeps it under two interceptions a game, how much better. I mean, Marshall's win percentage goes through the roof. And and you look at uh, you know when he's over that number, more than two turnovers a game, then I, I think it's like thirty percent chance of them winning. It, it's it's been kind of, uh, you know, what you expect. I mean, if you take care of the ball, then then you're going to win games. But especially with Marshall and, and the way that their defense has performed over the last few years pretty well, um, you know, it's on the quarterback to, to be a game manager and, and not put the defense and the entire team in adverse situations. So uh, he does have to improve on that. He, he has to get better in wet weather situations. You know, if this is a conference in which, you know, everybody's spread out. Weather is going to be a factor in many of the cities, you know, nationwide. And, and you know, there's not many indoor facilities within the conference. I think UTSA might be the, the only one that's indoors. So uh, whenever weather becomes a factor, his play has suffered. And that's something that has really, uh, you know, that that's written in the script of Isaiah Green and, and teams have taken advantage of it. Yeah, you mentioned the Middle Tennessee State game as well. I'm just looking at the stat line here, 24-40 for 365, the one touchdown pass, added 95 yards on the ground, but it's the three interceptions that really cost them. When you look at the score of that game, Middle Tennessee State won that one 24-13. Mm-hmm. Uh, transition to the receivers here for a second. You know, Obi Obialo made the decision to return back to uh, Oklahoma. This time he's landing with the mm-hmm. Sooners as opposed to uh, starting his career with Oklahoma State. Who's going to break right. out of that group and really be the go-to guy at receiver this year? Well, a player that I think they really need to keep their their uh, eye on is that everybody does is Corey Gamage. Corey Gamage was a kid that came in last year as a freshman, had a couple of games in where he really shined, and then a couple other games in which he made freshman mistakes, you know, wrong routes off, uh, check with me at the line, things like that. That Honestly, you mentioned that middle Tennessee game. There were a couple of routes that were run improperly that led to some of those interceptions. And uh, Isaiah Green tried to challenge, if I remember right, uh, Middle Tennessee safety Javante Moffat a couple times and came up on the wrong end of it, which Javante Moffat was a terrific player for the Blue Raiders defense. So, um, but but definitely Corey Gamage is a kid that, you know, everybody is looking to. I've heard he's had a great offseason. Obviously, we haven't been around anybody for the last, you know, four or five months, and Marshall had not started spring practice whenever the pandemic hit. But um brock thompson is another kid that was a freshman last season that uh really started to shine toward the the late part of the year had a great game against western kentucky in the win uh on homecoming day for marshall and and he's a deep threat guy so he spreads out the field a little bit but 
you know, Marshall Marshall has sort of transitioned the last couple of years, and they've really, really utilized the tight end well. Uh, last year was Armand Levias. Obviously, he's gone, but Xavier Gaines might be a guy that, you know, might be one of the biggest matchup problems within the league because he started out as a quarterback that could run a 4-5, and now he's a tight end that's bulked up to about 235 and, and really has the ability to stretch the field and line up in the slot wherever Marshall really needs him to go. Yeah, I'm actually really glad you mentioned the tight ends there. It's just for those of you listening who may not know, I'm looking at the stat sheet right here. It was actually the uh, the bulk of the receptions came from the tight ends last year. Armani Levias with 46 grabs, Xavier Gaines with mm-hmm. 24. And obviously part of that uh, part of that was the fact that Obi Obiallo was hurt. So, you know, you would think if mm-hmm. you get a full year out of him, he might have led the team in receptions. But it's a good point that you bring up that the tight ends too seem to be, you know, getting the bulk of the of the catches there. And maybe that's a good thing for a guy like Isaiah Green to have those safety blankets there. Uh, just transition to the next question. The Herd were really a veteran team last year. It really felt like they were in great position to win the East, as you mentioned. They got the big win against FAU. I'm sure FAU fans, they've uh, they've made it clear on our message boards and everywhere else that they, they felt that. Uh, and, and Lane Kiffin as well, you know, with the, uh, with the meme, felt that they got jobbed out. That's another story for another time. But uh, just in your opinion, uh, what's the, what position is going to be the toughest for the Herd to replace in 2020? Well, I think that's a linebacker position. You look at, at last year, and and you had Amari Cobb, who was you know a bona fide senior, um, had had worked his way up. He was one of those kids that started out, and he made some plays on special teams, which Doc Holliday is huge on, and that earned him some uh, some playing time as a freshman late in his freshman year. And then for the next three years, he he was one of those guys that didn't do, he didn't shine bright every single game. He just did everything right. And he was always in the right position. He was always active with his hands. I, I think against FIU two years ago when FIU had um, had the East Division within their grasp at home, he had an interception of James Morgan, who doesn't throw interceptions really, uh, the, and a return for a touchdown that really turned that game around and put Marshall up uh, pretty big early, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, he's one of those guys that just finds a way to make plays, and they've got to replace that. And Tyler Brown was another senior that was very similar. Um, Jaquan Yuli is a question mark after uh, suffering a neck injury last year. So it's going to be Tavante Beckett and a bunch of guys that are relatively unknown in terms of experience that are going to be at that middle level for the herd. Yeah, you know, you mentioned that FIU game. We'll come back to that one in a second. Uh, that one was a noon kickoff. It felt like it was kind of supposed to be the the coronation of a good year for the Panthers and, you know, coming in and winning the East, but uh, the herd had other ideas. Mm-hmm. We'll come back to that in a second with the abnormal off season that's been going on. What is doc holiday's reaction been to having a shortened spring? I, I, I don't remember off the top of my head if, if Marshall actually got any springtime in and, uh, and now getting the guys back. No, Marshall did not have any uh, spring practice in. They were actually slated to start on March 15th. And uh, COVID-19 was was declared a pandemic on March 11th, which was Marshall's pro day. Marshall was the last team to get in pro days before the pandemic, but they did not get in any uh, spring practices. So uh, the one thing the one thing that has been the sticking point, I've I've talked to Doc a couple times over the last few weeks, and the one thing that he thinks is a sticking point is the fact that his guys, you know, a lot of those guys don't have – you know, home gyms to go to. A lot of those guys don't have the ability to, to lift weights, and so it's going to be on themselves to do some, you know, do some working out that is really critical and, and that discipline factor. And he's hoping that his guys have been disciplined, and now everybody for uh, 
for the herd is, is pretty much back on campus with voluntary workouts. They were there the first day on June 1st. So um, he's hoping to get them back physically in shape. And he feels like if physically they get things going, then, um, you know, they should be ready to roll once practice comes around, whenever they may be. I want to ask you about two guys in particular. Uh, the first one being Naze Johnson, who had a heck of a year last year, 88 tackles uh, from the safety spot in, uh, in the secondary. And the other defensive back being Micah Abraham, who we saw in the Gasparro Bowl, had a, a 75-yard pick six, if memory serves me correct, in, a, in the stadium that his dad played in, Donnie Abraham. Just talk about mm-hmm. those two guys and maybe a strength of the herd being the secondary coming in next year. Yeah, you look, you look at Naze Johnson, and, and Naze is a former walk-on unheralded kid he's actually from the eastern panhandle of west virginia um, played over in uh, virginia but was not a heralded athlete out of high school not many people knew about him Uh, he comes to marshall and and another one of those grind guys that that sort of earned his keep and earned doc holiday's trust and uh, in his first career start if i'm not mistaken it came against western kentucky and he had a pick six to help marshall beat uh, western kentucky I want to say two years ago in Huntington. So um, it was it was a, a special deal for him that day, and, and that just sort of propelled him throughout. And he has really taken on that leadership role. And it seems like Marshall has always had a couple of safeties that have done that. And uh, a guy named Malik Gant, who you might remember from a few years ago, ran a similar pattern uh, progression through his career as Naze Johnson. And Naze really – uh, learn from Malik about the ins and outs of the safety positions so that he could really help the herd. But uh, definitely a vocal leader, definitely a guy that uh, that goes after it every single day. And, and Marshall's guys really look to Nante Johnson as a guy that, you know, sets the tone for that defense. And looking at uh, Micah Abraham, you know, he's a freshman safety last year and, and came on and they just couldn't keep him off the field. He was making plays in practice against Isaiah Green or any quarterback that that Marshall was really putting out there. And so uh, they gave him a chance in a game. And, and obviously he was a, a special teams kid as well. But, you know, you know his pedigree. I mean, whenever you've got an NFL dad, you're going to know the game and, and you're going to have that instinct. And he definitely showed it last year. And he's going to be a young performer for the herd this year as well. So waited a little bit to get to this player, but you can't talk Thundering Herd football without talking about Brendan Knox. You know, seemingly comes out of nowhere in that final part of 2018, and now he's arguably the top back in CUSA. Just talk about Brendan a little bit and his his journey from being, if my memory serves me correct, he wasn't on the depth chart in Open 2018, and now, you know, he's a 1,300-yard rusher. No, it's crazy. I mean, you look at, at 2018 and uh, the first seven games of the year, he didn't get a snap at running back and came on the last five uh, games of the year due to injuries and uh, other issues in the backfield. And, and I think he finished with 600 or, or 700 yards, which include a 200-yard performance at Virginia Tech. So um, every time there's a big game, that that guy seems to step up. And he's not going to wow people. I know that there's been a lot of you know wonder uh, of how he got the offensive MVP award last year in CUSA. And you look at those performances, I mean, you know, 23 carries, 220 yards, and two touchdowns in that win at Florida Atlanta going head-to-head with another candidate, Chris Robinson. So, I mean, it it was performances like that, you know, again, against FIU, uh, a game that was back and forth, and, and he's able to bust a couple big runs that really propelled the herd to the overtime win there as well. So anytime that Marshall needed that that big play, uh, he sort of reminds you of, of Devin Johnson, 
a former Marshall running back that, you know, was a linebacker's man. He started as a linebacker, really, and had that linebacker's mentality. And Brendan Knox is sort of that guy. He's looking for the contact, and he's looking to bounce off, and he's sort of that lunch pail guy that's going to grind out yardage and and, uh, not go down with the first contact. Yeah, once again, you mentioned that Brendan Knox did win the uh, Offensive Player of the Year, and I think that would be the FAU contingency again who were uh, up in arms that <laughs> rubbing a little bit yeah. of salt in there and, and that one. They were looking for Chris Robinson to get the award there. Uh, well, and, and Chris ahead. is a terrific quarterback as well. I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, you look at that that game, that that MVP award and uh, could have gone to either one of those guys. And you look at uh, – you look at what Chris did over the course of the year and, and, you know, everybody around here as well in Huntington. I mean, there's a lot of talk about conference USA football in, in, as a whole uh, here in Huntington and everybody, you know, they, they rave about Chris because his poise and, and his ability to make plays. So uh, it was up in the air and, and, uh, you know, Knox got that one, but, you know, that might've played into the, the head to head because when, when those two teams met, you know, Knox came out the victor with that one and delivered the knockout blow to FAU. Absolutely, no doubt about it. Uh, Got to run this one by you. Uh, does it seem to you as if there's a budding rivalry between Marshall and FIU? And then just to give those of you people listening a background here, you know, two seasons ago, Marshall, as I mentioned, came into Miami and spoiled the Panthers' CUSA title hopes. Last year was a tight ball game, as Grant mentioned. And I know I'm talking to some of the guys when they got back to South Florida there were some hard feelings about the the hit. I believe it was in the third quarter. I believe, yeah, once it was to open the, uh, the third quarter that knocked out James Morgan for uh, a drive or two and some lingering frustration from 2018. The guys consistently mentioned that they uh, wanted to win CUSA specifically because they felt that the Marshall game was the big letdown. So I'm just wondering, is that feeling mutual on the other side as far as maybe a budding rivalry between the two teams? No, absolutely. I, th- I think that the Marshall-FIU and the Marshall-FAU rivalries are right up there. I know that there's a lot of talk about Marshall and Western Kentucky being so close and and things like that. But, you know, for my taste personally, when you're covering a team and you get to know the, the guys on a little better level, you know, they get up for that Marshall FIU game, especially because Doc Holliday recruits so much in Miami. I mean, there's 30-some Florida guys on Marshall's roster. And so, you know, if you look at games that they're circling every year, yes, Western Kentucky is a rival and and that dates back to the 2014 upset that Western Kentucky ended Marshall's undefeated season. But if you look at games that, that Marshall's contingent of players are looking forward to every year, it's FIU and FAU because those are bragging rights that are going to go on for years to come because those guys have played together and against each other in high school. Yeah, Grant, it's funny you mentioned that, but it's a really great point, whether it's talking to the Tony Gators of the world or the, you know, the Dames twins, all guys from South Florida on FIU. They mentioned when you talk to them, you know, whether it's after practice or even during media day, you know, as far as which games they're up for. Of course, they mentioned Miami last year because, you know, that that's an inherent rivalry, you know, with Miami recruiting South Florida really well and then FAU. But the next game off the top of their tongue is Marshall because you hit the nail on the head. That's another game that, you know, the Doc Holliday does recruit South Florida really well. So they've seen a bunch of guys that played against in high school and things of that nature. So uh, it's definitely interesting to see that the feeling is mutual and uh, on both sides. Uh, here's a part of the pod where I kind of like to go inside the press box a little bit. Uh, Going to run this one by you. So uh, first question, what is your favorite CUSA stadium to visit? And what's your least favorite CUSA stadium to visit and why? <laughs> oh, let's see here. And, and for favorite Grant, CUSA. You on the spot, I, I apologize for I, no, I, I didn't know that one way ahead of time. So, <laughs> no, that's fine. Favorite CUSA stadium. Um, 
Definitely. I mentioned UTSA earlier, the Alamo Dome. I think that's really unique, and I love that. But in terms of that old school, like, it has the feel, it has that air about it, just it feels like college football should be. I love Southern Miss. You go to the Rock, and it's it's rocking out. I mean, it's got, you know, you got two levels of fans going crazy. Uh, the the atmosphere there is very special, and it's kind of intimidating because with them having black as one of their colors, if they do a blackout down there, then it's it's a special place, and you just get that feel whenever you walk in there. Um, from and being a Marshall guy, I know that this is probably going to get you know blown a little bit out of proportion because they are considered one of Marshall's rivals. But this is strictly from a logistical standpoint for myself personally. Uh, Western Kentucky is a difficult place to try and do some work. Um, you know, it's a small press box. It's kind of cramped. Um, you know, it, there's not great sight lines whenever you're trying to do something. So uh, if you've got to, you know, get up and, and go grab a piece of paper or go get something or go to the bathroom, then you're impeding four or five different people while you're trying to do it. So that gets a little bit frustrating. And, and honestly, I know that uh, you all are down in Florida, but the sight lines at FIU are difficult to deal with too. I mean, uh, it's something that I wish that it was more centric to the field. Everybody down at FIU is terrific to work with, and and it's not on them at all. But, you know, sitting in one end zone and and trying to look back all the way across the field to, to chart plays and, and see what's going on is rather difficult too. So uh, it does impede it a little bit, but, uh, again, that's not on the personnel. It's just sort of where we're set up right now. Yeah, I haven't been to Western yet. I'm making that trip this year, but I'll try to paint the picture for people listening at FIU. One of the biggest issues with Ricardo Silva Stadium is it was kind of built as a multi-use soccer football stadium. So the press box, what Grant's talking about as far as the sidelines, you know, for anyone who's watched football, you expect your press box to be centered somewhere toward the 50-yard line. And FIU is, is kind of cornered toward the uh i believe that's the south end zone it's just kind of a corner so if you are sitting where grant would be sitting where the the visiting media and visiting um um athletic staff would be coming in you kind of have to like crank your neck almost to catch it if the drive is heading the other direction so that's what grant is saying from a from a logistical point of view it's not the uh it's not the easiest <laughs> well and i'll give you i'll give you the example of why why i mentioned that um 2014 rakeem cato uh you know, goes to FIU. He's going to his hometown, which he's a Miami kid, and so there's a lot of a lot of air about that game as well. But I'll set the scene really, really super quick for you and move on from it. But uh, Rakeem Cato back in his hometown, and if he throws a touchdown pass, then he breaks Rus- uh, Russell Wilson's NCAA record for consecutive games with a touchdown pass. Um, Marshall is driving into the opposite end zone from where. Uh, we are seated as media members and it's a televised game. And so the booth next to us is the TV booth. And so they blacked out their windows. So I could only see to the 40 yard line and, and couldn't see the play. Like I could, I could see the snap and I could try and wrap my head around, but his record setting touchdown pass to uh, Ryan Yurchek, who's a freshman tight end at the time, I never saw it. So I couldn't really describe the play. I couldn't really do anything with it. I just gauged it on the reaction of the Marshall fans and the Marshall sideline. So, uh, again, things like that, you know, you you want it to be a little closer to midfield. But, again, I mean, you know, they're not there to build stuff for the media, and I understand that, and you take it with a grain of salt. But 
uh, personnel at FIU have always been supportive of trying to help us uh, with accommodations if there have been issues. So I'm not not speaking on that at all. They've been great, but it is a difficult place to cover a game. Absolutely, I think that can be said for the for the bulk of Conference USA. Any stadium that I've been to, the communication staff has been top notch and always willing to help. Uh, Grant, really quick, have you been to Jerry Richardson Stadium in Charlotte before, by any chance? I have. I have uh, been down there twice with Marshall. Last year was an absolute, I mean, it, there was a storm that came in right as kickoff started, and it looked like we were trying to cover a game through a car wash because the wind was blowing in on the press box windows, which are seamless. And it, literally they had guys like in between timeouts coming to try and squeegee the press box windows, and it just it wasn't helping either. But, uh, it, you know, I like Jerry Richardson Stadium in Charlotte. It, it's a unique deal it's a very very small stadium obviously they're they're an upstart and they have the ability to build on it if they get their fan base up but uh you know very small stadium reminds you a little bit of a, a high school type stadium but uh you know it's always fun to go down there to charlotte because i've got family down there too so that sort of makes that trip instead of uh, the working conditions so two-part answer to that for let you go and get out of here uh i had a situation like that last year uh fiu played at middle tennessee state and that was mm -hmm. a monsoon like no other to the point where, like, <laughs> like I mentioned, when, when the wind is coming towards the press box, you couldn't see more than a no, foot it's over. in front of your face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was rough. But one of the reasons I brought up Charlotte is there's two things that I like about that stadium. Like you mentioned, it's, it's small, so it does give it – I know this may come across as a slight, and I generally don't mean it that way. It gives it kind of an intimate feel, so much yeah, so – absolutely. That, yeah, yeah. So much so that I remember two years ago, uh, the 2018 year when FIU went up there, the FIU coach's box is directly to the right, if my memory serves me correct, of, of where I was sitting. But it, it's it's a it's a glass. So you can see the coaches there. You know, it's not blacked out. And I remember some of the uh, some of the Charlotte fans kind of giving some of the the FIU uh, coaching staff kind of a hard time there. So that was a uh, kind of unique to see because the the press box and Grant can attest to this. It's it's maybe what three or four or five feet off the the kind of the level of where the concourse is so the fans can kind of yeah walk it's, by. it's not far at all yeah, <laughs> yeah. you've got fans walking underneath you and like if, if if you get a guy that was a basketball player back in the day he's six seven and his head might go through your line of sight really quick it it is pretty uh small in terms of you know elevation and, and making sure but like you said i mean charlotte and odu is another one that that you really start to enjoy a little bit just because they, they do give that intimate feel to the game because it's not, you know, it's not uh, a 45,000 seat stadium with about 6,000 people in it. You know, it's, it's not empty. Everybody's sort of right around each other and right on top of the action, which, you know, that's sort of what college football is all about. You can yell at uh, the opposing team and they can hear you. So, I mean, it, it makes for a fun atmosphere. Absolutely. So we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. I want to say you can find Grant on Twitter at Grant, G-R-A-N-T, trailer, T-R-A-Y-L-O-R. You can find his work, again, at the Herald Dispatch. That's herald-dispatch.com. And, of course, you can find this podcast on underdogdynasty.com and SB Nation or this podcast uh, on Vox Media as well. Thank you for listening. Uh, next guest should be uh, Southern Miss beat writer Patrick McGee. So that'll be the continuation of our beat writer series. Thank you for listening. Joe will be back next time and uh, happy football watching, everybody.